This is not the time for the church or for us individually to throw in the towel. This is the time for us to show up probably more than we ever have before. More than we ever have before. Welcome to the next edition of Resurrection Covenant Church's series, Letters to the Church. This is a series in which we are making space this summer to hear from different voices across the church as they share with us what they would like to say to the church in this particular moment. And today we are really excited to welcome our friend, mm -hmm. Dr. Phyllis Shepard. Phyllis is the Associate Professor of Religion, Psychology, and Culture at the Divinity School and Graduate Department of Religion of Vanderbilt University. She is also the author of Self, Culture, and Others in Womanist Practical Theology. And among all of this, one of the reasons I'm particularly excited to welcome you with us and excited to have you with us, Phyllis, is because back in the day, you were our pastoral care professor at North Park mm -hmm. um, and your uh, trusted mentor and friend. So thanks so much for your taking the time today to be with us. It's so great to have you here. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here, especially with the two of you. Mm -hmm. Well, we appreciate it for sure. Yes. So we kind of have been asking this uh, perhaps silly intro question um, just as a way to get to know you, uh, for our people to get to know you. If you were at a party and someone asked about who you are and what makes you you, how would you respond to that question? Or some people have resonated more with the, the framing of that as what shapes how you show up in the world? Hmm. Hmm. Well, I think, um, yeah, I think I like the part. What shapes how I show up in the world. I remember once, um, and I use this quotation from the uh, poet Cheryl Clark a lot, where she says, I name myself black because that's the culture that I come from. I name myself lesbian because the, the women, those are the people that I love and want to be with. So I always take part of that, part of her quote and say, I show up as black, I show up as womanist. Um, I show up as lesbian and I show up as radical as, as I can and in the line of the ancestors that sent me forth to be in this world that we're dealing with. Okay. So I say all that to say, I think I show up as real as I can be. Um, and I show up with an interest, a concern and a commitment to be a part of the change that I think that I think that the church should be a part of, but that the whole world um, is embarked on forever, but certainly right now. Yeah, I think uh, these last few days or the last few months, especially, um, I think this has been known for a long time to many people, but we're seeing in this particular moment, all these intersectionalities of injustice on full display, right? With the layers of race and gender and sexuality and things like Black Lives Matter, Pride Month, COVID. How do you think the church can do a better job thinking about justice as intersectional? Oh, wow. I think one way is to ask the question, who's, who's at the table and who's not at the table? That's, mm -hmm. that's um, one way. I also think, um, you know, remember many years ago we talked about, um, and we got it from the Carmelites in Indianapolis, praying the news or praying the headlines. Yeah. Um, 
I think we ought to change the headlines that we are reading. So mm. many of us, you know, we go with the so-called tried and true, whether that's um, NBC, ABC, online, um, Fox News, whatever it is. We need to be of the news globally, uh, regionally, and then locally. That's one thing. And we need to find out what organizations who are who are really working for justice in our communities, we need to find out about those organizations that we know nothing about. Um, for instance, I think of the organization on the South Side Affinity that um, works with and advocates for and does justice work for um, women identified um, queer people. And I mean, I've been away from Chicago a few years now, but I've seen the way that organization has changed just by understanding that woman or women is much broader than most of us were brought up to think about. So what does that mean for the church? It means listening to the questions and concerns that don't originate inside the house, you know, the church, but originate also outside our comfort zone, um, our theological um, perspectives, and our lived experiences. Uh, for as long as the church thinks of, you know, church as within four walls or the square of a Zoom screen, screen that everybody who's um, on, let's say, for instance, the Zoom call is everybody that we've always been seeing, we're not, we're not going anywhere. Um, so in terms of intersectionality, look for the intersectionality in the places where our feet are in mall, not just inside the church, but when we go in the grocery store, our neighborhood grocery store, what are we seeing? What are we, and what is not making its way back into our concerns? Yeah, I think that's a great idea of when you say who's writing those headlines, if we're praying the headlines or who's yeah. in the church, if we're not, uh, you know, if we're a pretty homogenous community, I think that's something we don't think enough about when we're talking about intersectionality. We're all good at talking about our own community's justice, but what does that look like outside? Mm -hmm. And if we take re uh, religious perspectives, broadening the um, mm -hmm. conversation with our um, other faith leaders in our in our communities, I think that would open up what the church is doing. Yeah. Hmm. I think about your zip code where your church is. You know, you go two miles north, two miles west, south, you know, the community walk. And the diversity there um, in terms of, you know, race, ethnicity, but also religious and spiritual paths. I mean, that those are the places we need to be in uh, solidarity with, but also um, joining with and doing the work that um, we have to do right now. Uh, yeah. Phyllis, one of the things I remember in one of our classes uh, you teaching on and um, you talked a lot about was the praxis circle, like pastoral care praxis circle, mm -hmm. um, theological reflection, planning, action or involvement analysis. I hope I'm remembering that correctly from back in the day. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> back in the day. Um, Wondering how you would encourage a church to live into that 
um, that idea of a practice circle. If you want to unpack that practice circle a little bit, um, yeah, that'd be great too. But um, how would you encourage a church, a local church, to live into that? Um, it's interesting you say that. I was just doing a, um, I'll use the word, but with about 40 pastors and um, that we led ourselves or I facilitated in such a way that it, at least it seemed to me that the next logical step was to think about the pastoral praxis circle, which I learned it through um, uh, the book Holland and uh, Henry O, I think that's the name, um, social analysis and um, justice, faith doing justice. Um, so what it's comprised of is looking at the experiences we're trying to understand, not the, necessarily the experience that I individually am trying mm. to understand, but collectively, and then doing a, a deep social analysis is how did, how did we get to this place? So looking at it historically, looking at it economically, um, what are the implications of race, gender, and sexuality in terms of what we're trying to understand? And then asking questions um, or hearing them emerge, you know, what are the theological questions that are emerging because of this? Um, and very often I find that um, the first time we try to think this way, when we think about theological questions, we, we actually offer theological, theological answers. <laughs> God will see us through or you know, God doesn't like this or, but what I hope to work with people doing is, what does this say about who God is? What does it say about who you believe God is? And what does it say about who you believe God thinks people, thinks about people, humanity? Wow. What does God think about suffering? And what what is our place in, in the problem and in responses to, um, dealing with the problem, trying to transform communities, but not only communities, trying to form systemic structures that um, reproduce the very problems that we're concerned with. So this that's part of the reason we hear um, so much talk around, um, uh, I would say, either police reform or just get rid of it. Folks are wrestling with those critical um, social location, historical issues that continue to um, converge, particularly in the lives of black and brown people. So then the question is, so what shall we do? What does this situation call for us morally, ethically, and pastorally to do? How do we respond collectively? And how do we get that? You know, in some settings, in church settings, the pastor says, all right, this is going on in the community and we're gonna march up to so-and-so. In other settings, there's a committee called the Justice Committee or whatever the committee is, and they discern. And But how do we get actually, how do we form the church, the congregation for its vocation toward justice? Because that's, that's how I see it, that it's part of the vocation of the church, not just the pastor or the pastoral team. And I think some of the things that we already mentioned, praying the news together and then asking the question, what does the news tell me? What does it call me to do? What does it require me to do? I think one of the things you just brought up, Phyllis, that I, I've learned from you over the years is that oftentimes uh, 
we don't have good answers because we're not even starting with the right questions <laughs> uh, or that we're, we're nervous about interrogating ourselves and our communities. What do you think are some important questions the church needs to be asking ourselves right now, ourselves? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I think um, one question is, um, why have black lives not mattered? Mm. Um, how have, uh, how has the church, both locally and um, church at large, benefited from the oppressive representation and um, racist practices that are embedded in society? I mean, we, we hear a lot, I think, um, various in various church settings that the church is countercultural. Um, at this point, I would say, show me the money. <laughs> mm, absolutely. And that leads to the other part. How does the local and larger church show its commitment in terms of how it goes about creating its budget and then living into it? Where do you see... Um, where do you see examples of churches... Li actually living, not just saying, but living counterculturally. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I think um, the the idea of living counter uh, it's aspirational. I don't yeah. care what you're doing; it's aspirational. <laughs> but there are places um, where I think um, there's approximation. You know, the, or there are times when the church knows itself to be on the right path. I mean, I certainly think. Um, you know, much of what's happened at um, your, um, you know, the process that you all have gone through to discern, not just um, who's invited, who's included, but the process itself approximates the um, kind of open tableness that you aspire toward. Mm. So I think mm. that's, that's one example. I think the other is, uh, another example is, Churches where they've grappled, um, they've grappled um, theologically with um, inclusion, and it has an impact on the way they do worship. I think mm -hmm. of, uh, Bishop uh, Flunder's church out um, in California and that yep. fellowship denomination. So they're not just trying to say, you know, everybody is welcome here. They're also saying, what does this mean for what we sing, what we think theologically? and how we then bring that back into dialogue with the communities that we're coming from. So those are two examples, but I'd also say that um, there are numerous churches, certainly in, in Chicago, but um, um, pastored by black and brown folks who have longstanding histories of being on the streets um, and not being terrified. I'm not saying not being afraid, but not being terrified of what it means to say, as a church, we stand here. Um, mm. we, we can look at the Emmanuel Baptist in Atlanta. We can um, look at um, Trinity, UCC in Chicago. Constantly, um, if, you, if you look at the trajectory of some of these churches, you see that they've been responding over and over again to the to the um, 
injustices that take various shapes generationally. Mm -hmm. Now, denominationally, I, you know, for the most part, I, churches, in, local churches are individual and the way they embody the best of who their denomination is varies widely. Mm. Um, kind of changing tact here. You're also a psychotherapist among many other things. And obviously this time with all that's happening has taken a toll on many people's mental health. Um, mm -hmm. what, are, what, are, what is some of the advice you're giving or some of the practices you're telling people to engage in during this time to help them kind of weather these mm -hmm. many storms? Mm -hmm. um, th there's a church here I do quite a bit with um, where they invite me in to do something to respond to some of the, um, the concerns you're raising. Um, New Covenant Community, it's a disciples church. And so one of the things I've done with them is a Bible study series. Um, and I did a Bible study series on the text, um, whitewashed walls will fall mm -hmm. down. And combined with that is, uh, the, the reason I see that say that that's a response to um, the toll that all this is taking is that the text is about not only false prophets, and whitewashed walls, you know, walls that are not truly sturdy, et cetera, they're just covered over with this whitewash. The reason that's one of the reasons the text is important is because there are false prophets speaking. And what we said together in that group is false prophets don't speak to the ones who are following them. They speak to the ones they're trying to pull in. Mm -hmm. And so the practice of paying attention to um, what one is hearing and then discerning with that. I think that's a practice because part of what's overwhelming and taxing about this time is that there are so many voices that we hear that mm -hmm. use, and this is what happens in this text, that use the religious language to actually do the work of injustice. Mm. And it's, it's exhausting because if you're not recognizing that the, the, the religious and spiritual practices are being exploited to do injustice, you're depleted. So one of the practices is, uh, that, that I encourage people to do is to, do, to discern what we take in so that there's more choice. The other is, I mean, I'm a meditator and I encourage people to meditate. And in, if they're not... Um, interested in, you know, meditation um, all the time. I have a practice that I've worked with folks around called stop, listen, breathe. In any situation, stop, listen, and breathe. So begin to pay attention to um, what we inhale and what we exhale and being conscious about that. Um, Inhale care, exhale meanness, venom, mm. etc. So that we know that we're not at the total mercy of everything that's going on. Um, certainly meditating and breathing where you start with um, noticing your toes on the floor and deep inhales so that you notice the air coming into your diaphragm, expanding, etc. And also understanding that as a metaphor 
the degree to which we put our feet into the work of justice, there's an expansion that happens in us. And as opposed to some people are afraid the more justice work they do, the more, you know, they'll become angrier. But I actually think mm. um, it expands us to become more loving, which will allow us to become angry about injustice and more loving towards the people around us, and particularly those who are most affected by injustice. So at the risk of misusing self-care, <laughs> right. caring for self and others in community. You know, I'll stop there, but self-care is not just about me, myself, and I, but it's about us. Yeah, uh, that's really helpful. Thanks for that. Um, it's reminded me of um, a few years ago, You, we had grabbed lunch and you had referenced Rollo May's book, The Courage to Create. And uh, I pulled out a quote in preparation for our time together. He says, moral courage has its source in identification through one's own sensitivity with the suffering of one's fellow human beings. And it's what he calls perceptual courage because it depends on one's capacity to perceive, to let oneself see the suffering of other people. Mm -hmm. And if we let ourselves experience that suffering, uh, we will be forced to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm wondering. It struck with uh, stuck with me, and as I was preparing, and we were talking about this time with you. Um, what do you think it means for the church to live with uh, courage in this time, or or maybe to borrow that phrase from Rollo May, perceptual courage? Mm -hmm. um, I think becoming um, being able to perceive suffering is uh, or deepening one's passage uh, capacity to perceive deep suffering is something that one has to choose to do um, mm. as a church and as an individual. And we know when we have limitations because something will come our way, the news or whatever, and our first impulse is to change the channel, turn it off, or busy ourselves. Mm. Or even say, I'm not gonna watch that, it's too painful. Now that's mm. not to say that we watch everything that's painful, but even in making the decision not to, because I don't have the capacity at this time to take it in, is to notice a place where we need capacity building. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I think that one of the ways to build that is to um, talk in, in community, talk about the things that reveal to us where we don't have capacity, but in the context of either worship or in prayer, so that there's a what I call a container holding that which that kind the suffering that is so hard for us to stare in the face. Um, while we know that if we don't stare it in the face, neither will we act. Mm. So I, I see it as a spiritual practice, but it means do, it's not a spiritual practice that just happens up here. It means exposing oneself um, gradually uh, with leadership um, and with all that makes for a container to hold that. Um, all that ritual that liturgists love to talk about. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Always bringing it back to liturgy. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> which is why that's a, that's so important. Which is why, in back to the praxis circle, when we think theologically, we need to be thinking ritually. But we also need to ask ourselves, what in our rituals have sustained? Mm 
or at least not challenge the very things that Absolutely. we know are called to challenge. Mm. And some of our rituals cannot be redeemed. Mm. There's a whole interview right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, this has been really great. I think kind of as we draw our time to a close, perhaps um, it's a big question, So, but maybe in a shorter, briefer answer. Um, and you've kind of been talking about this this whole time, but what would you, what's your word to the church in this time? If you were to write a letter to the church, you know, what would, what would be a part of that letter? Mm. Um, I know a part of it would be is do not be afraid. What's the song say? Do not grow weary or too weary. Um, keep your, you know, I hate to keep pulling up these songs, but keep your hand to the plow. Um, this is not the time for the church or for us individually to throw in the towel. This is the time for us to show up probably more than we ever have before. More than we ever have before. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Uh, Phyllis, thanks so much. Um, Thank you. Really appreciate your willingness to take the time in the midst of your writing break. Um, not break from writing, but writing Writing break. break. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, just really grateful for you and for your voice and your um, role in my life. And I know Dave feels similarly in, sh in shaping and forming how I uh, think about my faith and my, my place in the world. Mm. So thank you. Thank you for having me.